Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message entitled, Therefore Be Perfect, was given by Darren Roundson and is the eighth in our series, Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll, we'll pass out a Bible while I fix this thing. Raise your hand. We're going to be talking through, um, continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just add something to that announcement. Let's give it up for Greg. Greg's an amazing guy. Seriously. If you don't know Greg, get to know Greg and his wife, uh, Eileen. They're just an amazing couple that serves here and has, has been in Long Beach for some time now. And I really think, as a young church, it's important that we connect with those that are um, more seasoned in life, in all seriousness. It's not, it's not a, it's not, it, we really need to, to value the, the men and women that are pillars in our church, that are going to carry us um, through seasons. And, and I really, I just, I just affirm Greg and Eileen, and thank you. Um, okay, so, let's see here. Okay. Second service. Now, it sounds confusing. We're starting at 10 a.m., but on the 31st, we're only going to have one service at 10 a.m. So we want to introduce everyone. I know some of you aren't going to make it, um, but the reason we are doing just a 10 a.m. that day is because this is a club, and they have a massive party, I guess, every 31st of January. So we can't be in here and do church. So we're, we're adapting, but uh, we won't have a problem again, I hope. Um, but hey, we're going to be moldable, and we're going to be willing to go um, with the blessings that we have. And this place has been a blessing. And I just want to say that because um, it was a little over three and a half months ago that we moved here. And um, so today, by the way, is our three-month official anniversary, which is cool. Um, and I just want to just, I know there's been a lot of people and just kind of invite you into the story. Uh, there was a few of us that set out from Rock Harbor, a church in Costa Mesa, um, a little over a year ago. And we, we were kind of a missional project and we said, hey, we want to serve the city and get to know the needs. And through that process, we kind of discovered we wanted to become a church. And three months ago, we launched out of this church in Costa Mesa called Rock Harbor. And we, we became our own church called The Garden. So it's exciting. That's kind of where we're at. Um, and, and it's important for you guys to know that are new, um, that we are defining who we are right now. We are using the Sermon on the Mount as a way to frame our community as a church. If you go to churches, you tend to go to these things and you see their mission statements, their values. And, and what we decided is that we want to define ourselves by what Jesus used to define his community of disciples. He used the Sermon on the Mount to frame anyone that would follow him. He, he, he answers the question with the Sermon on the Mount, what does being a citizen of the kingdom look like? If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not just a yes and a conversion and now I have a ticket to heaven. This This three chapters, these three chapters from the Sermon on the Mount is a powerful guide to following Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up. And, and it's important that we kind of catch up because we're going to finish chapter 5 and move on to uh, chapter 6 next week where we, we get into more, some more practical stuff. But I wanted to summarize. So if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 5 of Matthew. Um, I have the yellow Bible here. And it's page... 672 of, of Matthew in the Yellow Bible. Now, you can just kind of look at the, the beginning of chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 43, but I wanted to give you a quick summary of what we're talking about because to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to realize that this is one dialogue. And so as we've broken it up in the past three months, we need to understand that each topic is being built on the other. 
And so where he gets to today, where we're going to look at today, what we're looking at today, when he gets to this part, it's this climax. It's, the, it's really summarizing all of what he's saying. And so in order to get what he's saying, we've got to know what he's already said. So I'm going to do a quick review. So stay with me. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Um, you can just kind of look, look down so you get kind of an understanding of what he's talking about. But Jesus starts off with the blessed. Now, rabbis during that time would, would always use their first sermon as a way to define who, uh, define what their interpretation of the Torah was. There's all, there was all, a bunch of rabbis walking around during the first century. And it was kind of an elite uh, religious group. Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to do the same thing, but he starts off with something profound. He starts off with the Beatitudes. And as you read it, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who, are, who mourn. Blessed are the pure in heart, and so on and so forth. And, and oftentimes, we've looked at this as uh, something to strive after. Most of us that have grown up in the church, we read the Beatitudes, and we, we tend to say, say that these are actually conditions of blessedness, that somehow I have to become pure in heart, or I have to become poor in spirit. But what we, what we talked about is that the Beatitudes are not conditions of blessedness, but they are simply an invitation from, from God saying that the, the kingdom of God is open and available to anyone and everyone. And in the first century, that was not the case. The religious elite, the Pharisees, they lived in a way that to be blessed by God or to have favor, to have God on your side, you had to live a life up here of purity and excellence and wealth. Blessing was up here, but Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have no understanding of spiritual things at all. They don't know left from right from spiritual things. They're spiritually bankrupt, as Dallas Willard writes. Blessed are those who mourn, those that are weeping over the loss of loved ones. You guys are blessed by God. And it's this amazing announcement that, God, that Jesus starts off this, this sermon with. And he says to the people that are following him at this point, they would have had poor people. They would have had the, the Pharisees, the wealthy. They would have a crowd following him. And he's looking at the crowd, and I'm sure he's seen the conditions, and he says, he says, blessed, or the kingdom of God is open and available to anyone and everyone. So he lowers the bar for who gets into the kingdom. That's the blessed. That was week one. But then he goes on, and right after he says, okay, now that you're in, he raises the bar to what it means to be a disciple. He says, you have to become salt and light. You have to become preservation and the thing that casts out darkness in society. And that was the fulfillment. Those, those two things were spoken to Israelite, the Israelites, which is the Jewish community, in the Old Testament. That Jesus is saying, if you follow me as a disciple, you have to become the fulfillment of the Israel nation by becoming salt and light. And, he, and they're, they're, they start questioning him, and he says, I'm not trying to abolish the law, but I'm expecting that if you say yes to me, if you become my followers, now that you're in as a kingdom follower, a citizen of the kingdom, you have to have a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. Now, righteousness was good works. It, it, it was virtue. Are you guys following right now? I know this is a lot. I need some responses. I love, we're going to get into it tonight. I'm passionate about this topic. Um, but he says you have to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. And this becomes kind of the theme for the rest of chapter 5. And we've been talking about this. But if you, were, if you were listening when Jesus is telling this, or if you were reading this in Matthew as a recipient from this letter, you would have been blown away. That would have been telling us that we have to be 
more righteous than Billy Graham, than, uh, than Rob Bell, or whoever, whoever you think is moral. You have to be greater than them. That's what Jesus was doing when he compared it to the, the righteousness of Pharisees. And from there, he goes on to give six examples, six illustrations of what that righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees looks like. He starts off with, with uh, the concept of murder. He says, hey, don't, um, you've heard it said don't murder. And he says, what does he say? Don't get angry. He goes on. He says, don't uh, commit adultery. And he says, don't lust. Don't look at people in a way that devalues their humanity. He talks about divorce. And then he goes on to say, hey, some of, some of you use your words, your language, your, the way you talk to people to manipulate, to deceive, and to control. As a disciple... It's expected of you that your yeses are yes and your noes are no. So he throws out anger, he throws out lust, and then he throws out any, any concept of control, manipulation, and deceit with our words. We have to be full of integrity. And last week, Bill talked about um, retaliation. This is not connected, so I might be doing the splits today. So um, Last week, Bill talked about uh, the idea of retaliation. As, as citizens of the kingdom, as followers of Christ, when we are insulted by people, when our personhood is insulted, we no longer have a right to retaliate. We actually turn the other cheek. Or when someone asks us to go one mile, in the Roman Empire, a soldier can ask you to, go, to carry his stuff, basically his armor, his, his luggage, whatever it was, for an entire mile as a rule. And it was just a reminder of the subjugation that Rome had Israel, uh, Israel in. And Jesus says, no, 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 as, as my disciples, you'll go two miles. Give to those who ask and don't, don't turn away from one that wants to borrow. It was this unbelievable concept. It, it was, it's ridiculous. Jesus is, is taking all of these things and setting something up. And if you're reading this in the first century, you would know that he's leading to this chapter 5, verse 43. All of this, have righteousness of that of the Pharisees. And all of the illustrations is leading to what we're going to talk about tonight. So I know you're there. Verse 43. You guys ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this jelly. Just kidding. Beyonce. That was low. Cheap shot. <clears throat> oh, anyone see some good movies lately? I'm still stuck on Avatar, right? Is that number two now of all time? Right, 3D. Okay, anyways. All right. Yeah, I'm bummed about Pete Carroll, too. That's a bummer. Gosh. Come on, dude. All right. Uh, okay, so, verse 43. That was for me. I need a break. Um, you, have heard it, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only, the, only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus starts off this last illustration in chapter 5 in the same way he's done the last five examples. He says, you have heard this. This is kind of the common practice, the common law. And he reads, he reads from Leviticus, or he says from Leviticus 19.18, 
love your neighbor, and it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And, but then he goes on to say, and hate your enemy. Well, love your neighbor is from the Old Testament, and, and that's pretty authoritative. But when he adds hate your neighbor, he's really summarizing a, a, a concept that people practice in the first century, and I, and I know we don't do this, but it's the idea of having a loveless relationship with people that we don't like. You know, it's, not, it's more of a neutral stance. I won't bother them. We, we, can, we can all agree that maybe we practice this. But, but just to give you some context, because it's fun to share some of this stuff, during, during the intertestamental period of the Bible, so between Malachi and Matthew, there was about a 400-year period, there was a group of Essenes. These were religious scribes, or um, a religious scribes. And they were part of the Qumran community. And I know that sounds pretty crazy. Um, but basically, they wrote a commentary on the Old Testament, and they had this idea that because God was going to come in the day of the Lord and bring justice, that he was going to wipe out the enemies of not only God himself, but of Israel. So the Qumran community wrote that we were supposed to, as sons of light, the Israelite nation, they were supposed to hate the enemies of God. So it was practice. It's nowhere in the Old Testament, but it, but it was assumed during the first century that that was a practice. So they were, really, there was this underlying theme that anyone outside of the Jewish community was most of the time hated, or to put it in a, a more appropriate way, they, there was a loveless relationship. Does that make sense? Okay, so Jesus says, you've heard this, and then he says this, <clears throat> and I know we've all heard it, but I want you to hear what he's saying in view of the whole context. But I tell you, and, and this is his interpretation of the law, his interpretation of Leviticus 19.18 of what it means to have a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've heard this so many times. And that word love is unconditional love. It's agape. I've heard this so many times in the church. And, and it's easy for us to disassociate this and to make this a political agenda. Um, we can become pacifists. And, and I'm, not, I'm not making any of those statements but it's easy for us to disassociate ourselves with this concept because a lot of us don't have enemies or persecutors, right? Or maybe some of you do. Enemy is somebody who's looking to, uh, basically, they would, they would delight in your destruction. And we know what persecutors are. And Jesus gives us a new kind of way of life, a command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, in the Jewish context, prayer was the highest act, one of the highest acts of, of love. Because you're petitioning on behalf of somebody the well-being of who they are to God. Jesus is moving from a neutral, passive, loveless relationship and saying that part of our discipleship looks like loving our enemies and praying for, for those who persecute us. Now, I, I, I just... I just have to say that this, um, this is beginning to set up the climax. So if you're reading this, the, the way that it's written in Greek, um, it's really setting you up, and it's hard to describe it without, without showing you kind of like uh, the illustration on the screen. But in the previous five, chap five illustrations, Jesus talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about all those things. We just summarized. He does it in, a, in kind of a formula, A plus B equals C. He's not doing the same thing here. He's doing something different. So it's almost like we have to be on our edge of our seats. What is he going to say next? Now, I find this, uh, I find this interesting, just a side note. What, what happens if, uh, what can we do with our enemies if he takes away anger 
if he takes away retaliation, if he takes away deceit and control and manipulation, what are we able to do with our enemies? Do you see the genius of Jesus in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount? And just, just the, the system that he's, he's setting up pawns and, and the rook and he's moving to checkmate, which we're going to get to. I'm making it suspenseful, can you tell? Gave it away. Dang it. I always blow surprises. Um, so he's, he's been setting it up. And the greatest act of love in this context is this idea of praying for those who persecute us and loving our enemies. Now, <clears throat> you guys get that. Okay, so I can, I can end the sermon and say, okay, so love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But the reasoning baffled me in the last two weeks as I studied this. Here's Jesus' logic. Look at the next verse. So it says, but I, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and, and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, why would that baffle me? Well, what is he saying? Jesus is saying that when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, that by doing that, we are in, in, actually, in actuality revealing that we are children of God. That by loving our enemies, we are displaying the nature of who God is in love. And what, his, what does his love look like? Well, Jesus could have done a, a many of things to describe it, and look at how he describes it. Well, you know, the sun shines on the good and evil, and the, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is, our, what is our love supposed to look like? Well, it's unconditional, right? It's indiscriminatory. It's undifferentiating. As far as Jesus is concerned, it just simply rains or shines. Are we, are we connecting with that? That the way, what we're called to do, and he uses the example of enemies, by loving the enemies and, the, and, and our praying for those who persecute us, that act is demonstrating the very nature of who God is and revealing to a world the unconditional love of the Father and thus saying to us that we are actually children of the Father in heaven. How beautiful is that? But I want to say just a quick note that we cannot love this way unless we know who we are. You cannot love unconditionally unless you know who you are. And we talked about identity in the first two weeks. And it's going to keep going. Um, it says, uh, he compares it to the world. Well, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you, you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. So he compares doing what the world does as an example, like the tax collectors do that. Those that are kind of the worst sinners in your community do that, as far as the Israelites were concerned. And then he goes on to say, if you greet, if you bring a blessing uh, in, in your greeting, it's kind of this prayer that, that people would do in the first century. They would pray a blessing when they met someone, or greet, that's the word. Even, even the pagans do that. The people that don't have 
a relationship with God. They're idolaters. They're immoral. They don't even have the, the Torah, the law, but they do the same thing. So Jesus is saying, as a follower of him, you no longer have a luxury of doing what the world does. And then we get to the climax. And um, we get to, no, don't worry. Jesus says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This would have hit like a ton of bricks. What is he saying? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, first, the word perfect is the idea of, uh, is in context with love. So it's as if Jesus is saying, be perfect in love. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect in love. And that word perfect isn't a perfectionism. It isn't a uh, morality. It's not legalism. What it's talking about is wholeness or complete. Be uh, uh, inclusive. Be perfect. Be whole in the way you love people. Now, I'm going to get a little philosophical. It's the only way I can explain this text. So, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to read a little bit. But I want you to stay with me because this is a really important point. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, be perfect. Perfect means to be like God in indifferentiating, uh, undiscriminating love towards all people, even our enemies. I think we made that point. But that's the mark of a disciple. Now, this is what's fascinating. The reason this is a climax is Jesus is summarizing the Mosaic law, the Torah, in this one sentence. You've got to hear this. That what, How can we have the righteousness of that of a Pharisee? Well, Jesus is saying the way you do that is by being perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect, by loving perfectly. And so he summarizes the entire Mosaic law and says the fulfillment of the Mosaic law comes through what? Love. Can I get some head nods? We there? Okay. Now this is the philosophical part. I was explaining it to Alex, my wife, and she's like, dude, I don't think you should do that. (laughs) (coughs) And I'm going to, even if I mess up, I don't even care. I want you guys to get it. So I need some response to let me know. I'm still learning how to be a teacher. Um... Jesus is commanding us to be perfect and to love our enemies. He has an expectation that his followers will, will in fact, be able to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, and not only that, but to be perfect, to love unconditionally, in so revealing the very nature of who God is. He's expecting that of us. That is an expectation of his followers and his disciples. Now, so, so the, the question is this. Or the, the, the statement is this, the type of goodness, the type of righteousness. Now remember this, we're talking about what type of righteousness do we have to have that's greater than that of the Pharisees. Well, the type of righteousness he's looking for is, is acts of goodness that becomes complete in love. Philosophical part, here we go. Love does not illustrate. It simply is. Love does not illustrate. It simply is. What does that mean? Well, Jesus just spent six illustrations, six different parts in the last few weeks demonstrating what love would do in those situations. Okay? Let me try to make sense through Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard this so many times. 
1 Corinthians 13, um, chapter, uh, verse 4, I think. Yes, verse 4. So, I just made a statement, and I said, uh, love does not illustrate, it simply is, um, and it is the righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. And more importantly than that, I want to say this. Hear me really quick. Out of our union with God, we discover love as a life power that is expressed in every circumstance. Okay, Out of our union, out of our relationship with God, out of our discipleship, our following of Jesus Christ, we discover that love is a life power expressed in every circumstance. And even when it comes to our enemies. So what does that look like? Well, well Paul is going to do the same exact thing Jesus is trying to do, what Jesus does, but in a different way. Paul's going to describe love in circumstance. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 13, what does he say? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. What is Paul doing? Paul is describing circumstances of love. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, when we read this, this particular chapter in, in 1 Corinthians, what do we tend to do? Or I'll just speak for myself. I tend to say I have to become patient, right? Or I need to become more kind, less envious. We start looking at the behavior and we don't realize that that unconditional love can only come out of our intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, out of dwelling with love. Does that make sense? So Jesus uses the example of the sun shining on the good and evil and it raining on righteous and unrighteous. It's the same way that, that Paul uses circumstances to describe perfect love, whole love, complete love. I know I, I normally don't do something like that, but does that make sense? Are we there? Do we understand the significance of this passage? Jesus is saying that he, he's actually commanding us as followers to live a, a certain way and love a certain way that reveals the nature of God. That's a heavy command. Anger I get, yeah, of course. Lust I can get. You know, manipulation with words and integrity, I get that. Maybe hitting somebody back, yeah, I can get that. But loving in a way that reveals God's nature. So, how, how do we do this? Right? I think that's the next question. How do we love that way? Right? Well, I have ten steps to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <coughs> Well, according to what we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount, um, what's been revealed in Scripture, to answer the question, how do we love in a way that reveals God's nature? How do we love unconditionally? Well, just from the Sermon on the Mount, this is what we have. And it's not in a particular order. But I already said, you cannot love unconditionally unless you know who you are. So part one is identity. We have to recognize. And it's funny, we all, I always come back to a book called Abba's Child. We have to recognize we're dearly beloved by God. But that's the foundation of our identity. We can get confused, we can get off, we can get going on, on crusades and, 
and evangelism, all these things, and, and that's we need to. But you have to individually recognize that you are dearly beloved by God, that you are a child of God, that you are a disciple. And at the garden, as we describe who we are through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to realize that we're saying discipleship, and we're saying what it looks like in this text. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. We're not going to do baptisms every week and say conversion is the answer. That's part of it. But there's this life process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And it takes eternity to become more like him. And we have eternity. Step one. And I think a lot of you, this is hitting. It's simply the recognition of who you are. And step two, or I don't, I don't, again, I'm not saying there's a step, but I think that's, that's a good starting point, identity. Part two would be, um, because Jesus expects us to do this, we have to realize that we can't do it on our own. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. So, so for some of you, tonight might look like just recognizing that you've been trying to love, trying to live a certain way of life, but you just you keep hitting the same problem. Well, that's because the Spirit actually can do a lot more than you think. And, and the truth is this, the Holy Spirit comes in, and he will more and more transform you into Christ's likeness. You'll become more like Jesus Christ. And when you become more like Jesus Christ, you become more like your true self. When you become more like Jesus Christ, you become more fully. When I, when I begin to, to, uh, to put away my childish things like my anger or like my ability, ability to exaggerate, and that in, in stages becomes more like Jesus, I'm actually becoming more Darren. And it's the greatest gift to receive yourself from Jesus. It's the greatest gift. When you don't have to be someone else. But, and trust me, the self-help books, they're, they're good, but they're missing this vital ingredient. The Spirit of God comes to empower you to be the type of person that this stuff comes easy. Part three and most of us probably skip to this, or we start here, is discipline. We, we have a part to play, guys. We have a part to play in not being angry. I told you, there, there are spiritual disciplines out there. Like, uh, I talked to somebody the other, other day, and they said they, they fasted, but they didn't get anything out of it. Fasting is a discipline. Well, if you fast on a regular basis, you don't know if, whether or not you got something out of it. Because if in 20 years you are less grumpy when it comes to mealtime towards your wife, you did something good. That discipline worked, right? Or I told you uh, a couple weeks ago that I was working on slowing down because I tend to just run the race. And the disciplines look like picking the longest line in the grocery store, driving the speed limit. That's hard. Taking the slow lane, not passing, not systematically trying to decide how to get to the point fastest. That's how I do it. I'm always on my, my Google Maps. Those are disciplines to, to get me there. They're not the answers into themselves, but they're a way to help us to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, so those are three I, I came up with. We rest in our identity, we invite the Holy Spirit, and we sometimes we just, we, if we're an alcoholic, we just don't go to the bar anymore. This type of godly behavior that is described in chapter 5, and the actions are only a result in dwelling in love. And so we become the, those types of people. 
where we are patient and we are kind. We are not jealous. I don't know if I said that right. The kind of person that loves enemies and prays for those who persecute us. That's the expectation tonight. Now, I think about um, our church. Man, can we embody this type of love? I just want to dare us. Could we embody that type of love? Think about Jesus on the cross. He's being nailed to the cross after he was beaten. And as he's hanging up on the cross, exhausted, beaten, humiliated, he says, Father, forgive them, but they don't understand what they're doing. That was easy for Jesus to say. Do you know that? Do you know that was easy? It would have been hard for Jesus to say, curse them in your name. That was not his nature. His nature was abiding in the Father's love, and his love was to say, forgive them, as he's dying on the cross. That's the type of love we want to embody in this church. So I wonder, what does that love look like? Who are your enemies? Who are the people persecuting you? And as I look at it, I think about this. What would it look like to be creatively pursuing the good and well-being for those that have hurt us? who not only offended us, but continually offend us. For the people that are addicted to pornography, and we think that's disgusting, and to the people that make pornography films. Can we love the type of people that smell and can't talk right and look different and are ugly and homeless and invite them into our life as much as we do the wealthy person that looks and acts and talks and smells and does exactly what we do? This church will be shut down before we become the homogeneous, self-protecting community. We have to live captivated by the love of God. We have to get there. What what would it look like, guys? I mean, think about, for me, it's the people that have these ridiculous opinions on church and the way it should be done. How do I pursue loving them? Rather than saying, no, I'd rather not hang out with you. How do I love them? I don't know. I don't, I don't think for some of you the message is, okay, pray for, for the persecuting that you're getting going on. Maybe some of it it is at work. I don't know. But I think maybe tonight is a, it's a place, it's a safe place to start thinking creatively about loving the people that don't look like you about loving the people that are right out here and smell so horrible sometimes that you can't stand it. That when they get out of your car, you know you have to febreze the seat. Loving them, that's inviting. That's not about going out. This is, oh, this is such a big point. It's not about going out and serving. It's about embracing them into your life. Can you hang out with the meth addicts? Have you seen what methamphetamines does to people? Do you have any clue? Why does this city struggle with that? Can you hang out with those that are in gay lifestyles? Not as a mission, but as a way to just simply love people that are different from you. How many... The list goes on and on, and you can just look at the statistics here in the city. How many of you know a blood or crypt? Or a drug dealer? 
How many of you know a homosexual that's been completely devastated by the church? Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. My question tonight, as Mickey comes up to worship, you, you, I left a couple of things. It's, it's all over the place. Identity, maybe, the Holy Spirit, discipline. But the, the, the question tonight, for some of you, is how do you compare your love? How would you describe the love you have? Do you compare it to the world? Or is it perfect? Let's pray. Jesus, come right now. Lord Jesus, we just ask you to come. I'll just pray my prayer. God, I desperately want this community to get this. I want to get it, Lord. I don't want to just know it, Lord. I want to, I want to, I want to know it. I want to taste and understand and dwell and saturate myself with this type of Love, Jesus. Lord, would you help us? Lord, I just pray against the response of a Sunday message. God, may this be life transformation right now. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now to do your work. Wherever we're at, would you do the work tonight? Lord, help us. Just pray that you would move, Father. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the Garden, or would like to find out more about the Garden Church, please visit us on the web at thegardenlb.org.